so we gather the foot of the cross to remember once again life given by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you have been at funerals for grandparents, some for parents, some of you have been at funerals for aunts and uncles, some ladies in our church who have buried their husbands, there are some ladies in our church who are thinking, I wish I could bury them, <laughs> in a shallow grave in the back garden, we don't even notice. They say marriage is like a pack of cards, right? It starts with dimes and hearts and ends with a club and a spade. <laughs> But death is our enemy, and it robs us of so much, doesn't it? There are some in our church who, who bury their children. Now, how hard that is. I mean, funerals in general are sorrowful and morbid. But how much more when you've got to bury a child in a, in a half-sized coffin? That's just beyond the pain. That's a, that's a pain that no parent should have to face. But we're going to read this morning a story of a lady who has buried her husband and is now about to bury her child. And on the way to the graveyard, she encounters Jesus. Or perhaps it's that Jesus encounters her. And that's what we're doing over these next couple of weeks, encounters with Jesus. So Luke chapter 7 this morning, and we're going to read about the widow and her dead son. Luke 7 from verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. 
They were filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So hopefully you remember that last week we met the centurion. The centurion was the one who encountered Jesus. He had sent out an invitation or a request for Jesus to come to help him, to come and touch and heal his servant, his sick servant. Remember, the servant was about to die. Not quite dead yet, but he was literally hours from the funeral. They'd already picked up, picked out the funeral hymn and decided on the, you know, the plate of eats that were going to be served at the servant's funeral. But the centurion had understood a number of things. The centurion was a warrior, accustomed to power, accustomed to control, and he understood this. I am not worthy. He understood grace. And he also understood faith. He said, Lord, just say the word. And Jesus says that this, that, that there is no one in Israel who expresses faith like this godless, heathen warrior. I'm guessing that, that put some noses out of joint amongst the religious community of the day. Just after that, Jesus goes on a cross-country hike. He and his disciples with him, and off they go, and a large crowd follows. Because, hey, it's exciting to be with Jesus. We just by word heal some centurion's son, and they just listen to the Sermon on the Mount. Let's follow Jesus and see where he's going. It's exciting. And I imagine people in the crowd saying, so where are we going? I can imagine the disciples saying, Jesus, so where are we going, Jesus? Where are we going today? What exciting place are we going to? What have you got in store for us? And Jesus says, we're going to Nain. And I would imagine that many of the people in the crowd would go, where? Nain? Where is, even, where is there even a place called Nain? Because Nain is it's, it's barely a village. It's apparently quite a picturesque place today, and you know, thanks to highways and travel, you can get there relatively easily, and it's on the side of a mountain, that's very pretty. Back then, it was not even a village, it was a hamlet. It was this tiny little place, just, just, just to get this, right? Capernaum, which is where Jesus is kind of operating from, Capernaum is in the middle of nowhere. And then, is 20 kilometers south of nowhere. So if you really want to go to nowhere, Nain is the place to go. Nain is, is not even a nowhere town. There is nothing there. There is no reason for anyone to go there. I, I would kind of understand if the passage said, told us, of Luke told us that Jesus was on his way to somewhere and made a detour to Nain because you can't even get somewhere by a name. You, you have to detour to get to Nain. I could have but that's not what happens. Jesus says, we're going to Nain. It's the sort of town that occasionally someone comes from, but it's not the town that anyone ever goes to. If you say anything, you just relocate. Where are you going to? Nain. No. It's like, we're relocating to Vicky's one day, if there is even such a place. It's that kind of, that kind of feel, right? And he's going to this town of Nain, and I think he's deliberately going there. Jesus went to a town called Nain. There's no accident, there's no detours, that's where he's going. He woke up and said, guys, we're going to Nain this morning. I can imagine Thomas or one of the other disciples saying, why? Why on earth would we 
go to Nain. Let's go the other way. Let's go to Jerusalem, where, there's, where we can have some real influence. You don't go to Nain for anything. And Jesus says, well, he doesn't say, but I can imagine him saying, we haven't got to there. We have things to do. We have someone to see in Nain. And so you've got this large crowd following Jesus, and I would imagine, I'm, I'm adding to the story here, okay, but I imagine it's a bit fun, and some, it's, it's festive, it's exciting, because Jesus is exciting at the moment. This is right at the beginning of his ministry. Everyone loves Jesus. Everyone loves what Jesus does. They love the stories that he tells. They love the preaching that he preaches. They love the fact that he heals people. It's just, it's always fun to be with Jesus. Anything can happen. It's really exciting. And I can imagine them on this cross-country trip going, oh, what are you going to do today? It's going to be fun. And I can imagine Peter going, hey, pull my finger, pull my finger. No, no, it'll be fun this time, really. It's that kind of vibe, right? Everyone's just like, woo, we're having fun. And this large crowd of celebrating, fun-loving people following Jesus arrive at the gates of this little village, only to find that they're up against another crowd coming in the other direction. And these two crowds kind of bump heads and mill around, and there's a bit of a stop and a push, and someone in the back of, of Jesus crying, like, What's the hold up? It's like, Does someone die? You know? It's a bit inappropriate. And then word travels back that actually, yes, someone, someone has died. <laughs> that, that's what's going on here. We've bumped into, and, and, and the crowd that's with Jesus suddenly, the mood changes. Things get a little more somber. The guys step off the road, perhaps, and have to take more heads about. People muttering, shame, this is tough, this is sorrow, so sad. Because they have that, they've walked into a funeral procession. And the, the excitement and fun of this outing in the countryside to, to see what Jesus is going to do next is kind of brought up short by the reality of life and its brevity, its shortness. Two groups collide, two crowds. Two, two journeys, two radically different destinations. One guy put it like this. One group of people gather around Jesus and they glimpse the glorious yes of God's heart, whatever that means, right? And they're excited by, and they celebrate the possibilities of what could be. And the second group, caught up in the pain and misery of the moment, and there is weeping and wailing. As the, there is the terrible no of the finality of death. And there are days where I think you and I are in that happy crowd. We're bubbling along, having fun, saying, hey, pull my finger, it'll be fun, life's a blast, let the good times roll, Jesus is great, everything is wonderful. And then there are those days, there are those moments, there are those months and years even when, when you're in the other crowd. I think some of us spend an awful lot of time in the other crowd, wearing black, because life is hard, and life is short, and life is painful, and life is troubling, and life brings sorrow. And welcome to our world of sin. And because of sin, we will face the reality of death, and decay, and destruction, and of sorrow, and sadness, and loss. Houses will burn down, and we will get robbed, and our hopes and dreams go up in smoke. Last week, Tom phoned me. He 
because his phone had been stolen out of his house. Oh. And I keep sending a list of all the church numbers, so I WhatsApp a whole bunch of numbers to him. He says, thanks very much. On Friday, he phones me. Chris, can you please send me that number, that list of numbers again? I said, why don't you lost the numbers? Did you delete them? He said, no, my phone's been stolen again. This time the guy came into the house with a knife and took it from me. And then Chris, this week, driving around Pine Town, he gets his wallet, well, they took his wallet, took the money out, well, gave his wallet back, isn't God good? Um, and cleared out the cash reserves for the business, and at least they let him drive off in one piece. And our, our hopes and our dreams are just left, right? Welcome to our world of sin. You know, you know one of the more heart-wrenching parts of the story, and I, think, I mean, you know it, right? You get it, yeah? That there is a dead person being carried out of this village, and walking behind the dead person is his mother. This is not an old man who has lived a full life, and now is off to his grave reward. There's sorrow in that, but we can have a measure of rejoicing. This is, this is a young man, not a boy. This is, this is a young man, perhaps between the ages of 15 and 25. And we've got a number of young men between the ages of 15 and 25 here this morning. That's not the time to die, is it? And, and his mother is walking behind him, and she is walking alone. Because this is not the first funeral she's been to. She did this a little while ago, last week, last month, last year, 10 years ago, I don't know. But at some point in the past, she buried her husband. Now she's been raising the son herself. And now her only beloved son has lost her life. And can you just feel for a moment the emotion of that? To bury not only your husband, but to bury your son. And to be left then alone. And there are other implications in this that this lady may not only in the back of her mind, but it will be in the front of her mind tomorrow morning. Because back then, a woman was entirely dependent upon her family for everything. Ladies didn't get to become heart surgeons, or legal secretaries, or architects, or even car guards. There is no job waiting for this lady. She's not going to wake up tomorrow morning and go and stand in the queue at the post office for her 350 rand COVID grant. There is no social structure from the government to hold her in place. She buries her son and tomorrow she begs for her neighbors. That's her future. And so she's not only burying her son and burying the hopes and dreams she had for him, she is also burying her own future. This is about as helpless and a hopeless a place as you can get. And again, remember last week, the warrior, strong, in control, issues commands, can call on what he likes, in a position of power, meeting Jesus. And now, somewhere on the opposite side of that social scale, a widow who is hopeless and helpless with nothing. And Jesus steps into this scene of despair and hopelessness. And I wonder, is he here by accident? Is he here by coincidence? When he woke up in the morning and said, let's go to Maine, what was he thinking? It's the only time that it's recorded that Jesus came to the town of Maine. And in fact, it's the only time in the Bible that we read about Maine. No one else 
else in the Bible, I mean, there's a lot of Bible here, right? No one else in the entire Bible ever went to Nain. Because again, Nain, what place you go to? Was it just coincidence that he arrives as the funeral is heading out to the burial site? Or is this part of his plan? And Thomas saying, So Jesus, why are we going to name? You'll see. You'll see. And it seems to me that, that Jesus travels to unusual places, to hopeless places, to find people like the widow. And to find people like, like you and me. Because he didn't get here by accident. And this is the words then that Luke puts into the story. Jesus sees the widow, he sees what's going on, and his heart went out to her. Don't you love that phrase? His heart went out to her. Other translations just say, I get compassion on her. I'm sure he did. Thanks so much, Mark. You had compassion on me. Your heart is going out to me. And I feel that. Thank you. And you feel the tenderness in that, don't you? You feel the gentleness of the Savior in seeing this, this ruined life, this life that's off to bury everything, and his heart goes out to her. You may have felt that yourself at some stage. You've seen someone in grief, and you just want to embrace, you want to fix things, you want to make it right. Your, your heart goes out to them. You cannot shame. And Jesus' heart goes out. And Jesus' heart goes out to you. And in your pain and in your sadness and in, in, in the moment when you're burying your dreams because your dreams have died, Jesus' heart goes out to you because he loves you. And we know, we know Jesus loves me, this I know. We all, many of us sang that song when you were five years old, I had a friend who told me once that when she was five years old, she could never understand what a designer was. Jesus loves me, designer. <laughs> <laughs> Took her a while to figure out that there were gaps in those words. Um, but we, we, we sing, little kids sing the song, and we're like, oh, no, Jesus loves me. But do we really know that? Paul, Paul prays this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, oh, that you may grasp the breadth and length and height and depth of the love that Jesus has for his saints. Oh, that you may grasp that this morning. That Jesus' heart goes out to you. Oh yes, Jesus loves me. But that you may grasp the extent to which he does. And to understand that his heart goes out to you this morning. That his heart feels your pain. Because that's what compassion is. My heart feels your pain. His heart feels your pain. When your child has died. When your dreams are buried. When your hopes for the future look grim. His heart feels your pain. Oh, how he loves you. And the Lord saw this woman 
and his wife goes out to her, to this widow, and he says to her, don't cry. Husbands, you know that works, don't you? Pat on the hand, don't cry, dear, don't cry. That works out. I don't know, for me, yeah, uh, it's just hearing silence, but I can never. I'm not sure if these are the words that I would choose to use at a funeral, right? I've officiated a few funerals. I tend to say, please cry. Crying is a good thing. I've never had a funeral had the courage to say, don't cry. Please don't. I know he's dead, but don't cry. It feels a little heartless to say that, doesn't it? And yet in her tears, Jesus says to this widow, don't weep. And what's kind of odd is that at another graveside, a couple of years down the road, Jesus will be the one who does the weeping. Jesus at his friend's grave, and Lazarus who's been dead for three, three days, and there Jesus weeps. One of the disciples come to him and say, hey, remember we said to the widow, don't cry. No, no, he weeps, and he weeps at that graveside, and he weeps for the, the brokenness of the world, and he weeps for what sin has done, he weeps for death, and at the graveside Jesus weeps for you and for me. I'm my Jesus wept. And yet to this widow he says, don't weep. And it's not because he's heartless. Instead what he does is he, he literally reaches into the coffin. Now, it's not really a coffin, they didn't have a coffin in those days, it's a body wrapped up in a bit of a cloth, put him on a board or a stretcher, um, called a buyer, and they would carry him out of town. So he stopped the guys from carrying him, and he reaches in to this, to this dead body and touches this dead body because it's what Jesus does. He reaches in to death and to dead places and touches the things that are dead, and he says to this young man, Arise. Now, last week, Jesus healed a sick man. He healed a man who was very sick and about to die, but he wasn't dead yet. And he healed the sick man because he'd been asked to. And the one who'd done the asking had recognized grace and had expressed faith. And there is some sense in that previous story that Jesus responded to the understanding of grace and the expression of faith. And Jesus responds to the request and does what's asked. Story is a little different, isn't it? To start with, this isn't someone who's about to die. This is a corpse. And no one has asked Jesus to do anything. Peter hasn't come to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, do something religious. At least do the eulogy. No one's asked for anything. The widow has not fallen at his feet and begged him for something. Because what can anyone do? It's one thing to ask you to heal a sick person. It's but death. I mean, death is final. Does this widow at any point express any measure of faith? Is there any sense in this passage that this woman is believing God for great things and, and believing Him for miracles? Is she really believing in Jesus right here? Has Jesus at this moment stepped up to the coffin and addressed the dead man and said, "Do you want to live?" If you want to live, raise your hand. No, no movement, no faith there. Sorry, Miriam. That just doesn't happen, does it? Jesus acts independently of being lost. Jesus acts purely out of mercy, simply out of compassion because his heart has gone out to the swing. Jesus acts out of love. And in love,
he steps into this moment of heartache and, and does something that, that, hasn't, <coughs> that hasn't been seen in this community for quite some time. And he says, rise. And he brings this dead man back to life. And he still does it today. Every one of us here was once dead in our trespasses and our sins. And if we're followers of Jesus this morning, it is because at some point, Jesus stepped into us and said, Arise. Jesus stepped up and stepped in and brought us to life out of the deadness of our sin and made us alive in Him. Now, what about physical resurrections? Does, does Jesus still do that? Should we go to the graveyard later and command the dead to rise? Well, on the one hand, uh, it's not time for the resurrection of the dead yet. That is promised to come and one day the dead will be raised. In the meantime, have there been some who have been raised? And my definitive answer is, maybe I'm a little cynical. I'm sorry. I, I know there's lots of wonderful stories of children who die in car wrecks and come back to life and some who had a heart attack and three days later and I, I'm a little cynical. I do see in this story that there is most certainly this promise of our physical resurrection from the dead one day. That we will all die. But as Paul says in Romans, no, Corinthians, we will also all be raised. And our souls will inhabit a new body, one that is, will not be subject to decay and death ever again. And again, you've got to love how Luke sets up the story and how he gets it going. Luke, he says, um, Jesus says to the young man, rise. And Luke says, the dead man sat up and began to speak. Surely it would be better to say, Luke, why didn't you tell us that the recently dead, but now alive, sat up? Right? I mean, the dead guy sits up. Is he still dead? No, he's come to life. But it's just, it's, I love the wording, dead man sat up. I mean, if we're at a funeral and the dead man sat up, what would be our response? Exactly. I don't think too many of us would be going, oh, I think we'd be running away screaming. It's the zombie attack, the zombie apocalypse. It's here, right? We'd run away screaming. Jesus doesn't just resuscitate dead bodies, but he brings this young man back to life. And as much as, as much as we recognize that if the dead man sat up and started to speak, we'd run, that's actually the response here as well. The NIV kind of covers it up. The NIV says, and the people were filled with awe. But I think if you go to one of the other translations, you'll read that their great fear came upon them. Who would have thought that? Right? I mean, I'm at a funeral, a dead guy sits up. Yeah, fear. Fear would be the word that comes to mind. Great fear. They were afraid. They were afraid. And I think fear for two reasons. Uh, number one, a dead person is speaking. That's pretty freaky. That's pretty scary. That's reason to be afraid. But I think secondly, because there is now a very real evidence of the tangible presence and power of God. And it's still accountable to me. 
And so there is this combination then that goes on of the fear of God and glorifying God for what He has done all at once, which is, quite frankly, a common combination throughout the Bible. Fear and glorifying God. And when God is at work like this, the people that see what's going on have so much more than just a sense of, oh, that's nice. Isn't God nice? I think when we speak of encountering Jesus or having an encounter with God, we want to have in our minds this, ah, just wrapped by his embrace. Isn't this nice? Warm fuzzies. Ooh. Pixie dust is, you know, glitter in the sky. But when this crowd experiences the power of God, there is a tangible sense of fear. God is in our midst. And they say two things. They say, first of all, they say, a great prophet is among us. A great prophet is among us. Now, now here's something interesting. I said that it had been a long time since this community had seen something like this. You'd be tempted to say, well, surely it's been forever since the community had seen something like this. Five kilometers away from the town of Maine, there is another little nowhere town called Shuna. And about 800 years earlier, a guy called Elisha visited the town of Shuna and raised a dead son back to life. I meant to double check the story today, this morning, and I forgot. So somebody can correct me afterwards. I think in that story, Elisha goes and lays himself down on the child twice. And the child is raised from the dead. Just, just five kilometers from where Naaman is. Now, Elisha did that, but his teacher, Elijah, did something similar a little bit further away. Elijah went to a widow who had a dead son and laid himself on the dead son three times. Elijah had to do it three times. Elisha only did it twice because Elisha was considered to be a greater prophet than Elijah. And now, not five kilometers from this place where Elisha performed his miracle, Jesus raises a dead son. How many times did he have to lay himself on the body? He just spoke a word. And so the people of this town, who know their Old Testament, and perhaps even understand their geography, go, Elisha was a great prophet. A greater prophet than him is alive. And in saying that, there's a recognition again also of a phrase that Moses spoke. When Moses said to the people of Israel, I'm going to die, and one day God will raise a great prophet. And when he comes, we need to listen to him. And these people, seeing what Jesus has done, going, is this the one? Is this the one? The second thing the crowd says, not just the great prophet has come, but they say this, God has come to help his people. What a relief that is to know, right? That to know that God has come. And not only that he has come, but that he's come to help. That God has not come to judge his people, which is very often the case in the Old Testament. Or that God has come to condemn his people. Or that God has come to berate his people and wave the finger. 
that God has come to tell His people to pull up their socks and try harder. I think that for many of us, if, if we were ex to expect God to come, we're thinking that those are the words that we would hear Him say. That if God comes to us today, I think many of us would go, God would come and say, I'm really disappointed. I'm disappointed in what you did yesterday, and what you said the day before. I think some of us still have this idea that God is cross with you. Or that perhaps even God doesn't have a whole lot to say at all. And yet these people say, God has come to help his people. We are not left alone. God has come to help us in our fight against the sin-sick world. We are not left by God to figure it out ourselves. He comes to help us. And here's how he does that. Because Jesus is not only the great prophet, Jesus is also the greater beloved son who dies raised again. You need to find that phrase there about the woman's only beloved son, some kind of a, a, a familiar phrase from somewhere else. Doesn't it make you think back to John 3, 16 that we read about for God's love the world that he sent his only beloved son. And Jesus is the only beloved son of the Father, the son on whom all the hopes and dreams and the future of the universe hangs. And this beloved son dies. And on the cross, just moments before his burial, Jesus looks to Mary and says to Mary, John, he's your, he's your new son, John. This is your new mother. In this story, Jesus raises the son, gives the son back to the mother. On the cross, Jesus says to John, Mary, here you go. And then his mother, Mary, watches her son die. She watches his body taken down from the cross and wrapped and laid in a tomb. And his mother, the widow, watches as her son is put in a cave and a rock wall over the entrance. And the beloved son of God, the father, dies and buried and, and hope is gone and the brief Life that was Jesus as he walked the earth for three years, teaching and raising the dead. <coughs> that brief light of hope is extinguished. And three days later, his mother makes her way to the tomb to anoint the body, only to find that the rock has been moved away and that the tomb is empty. And that the beloved son has been raised to life. And in that moment, the power of death is broken and sin is conquered and our enemies are defeated. The author, Alexander McCarran, suggests this, that this story becomes then a parable of Christ's whole work in our world. That his special mission from God is made clear. He is here to stop the relentless march of death. To meet power with power 
and to overcome. Two crowds following two men. One in a coffin, one who will reach into a coffin. Which crowd are you in? Which person are you following? One route will lead to further misery, will lead to a cemetery, a grave where hopes and dreams are buried. The other leads to a cross, but ultimately leads to light and life. Jesus comes to us in our sorrows, he comes to us in our need. For he is the greater beloved son who has come not to condemn or to judge or to disapprove or even to just pat on the head in an absent-minded, condescending kind of way. He has come to help his people. He has come to help you. We're going to encounter Jesus this morning. We're going to encounter him in communion as we break bread together as we drink grape juice together. I hope some of you have brought something to eat and to drink. Hopefully one day we'll be allowed to provide it for you. So won't you take the bread? then of Jesus who is raised from the dead and meets you in your needs, meets you in your sorrow, who comes to you this morning and says, I am the bread of life and I bring things to life, bring dead things to life. same way after the meal. He took the cup. 
this cup is my blood. It's the new covenant. My blood shed for your sins. Take and drink in remembrance of me. Stand together and it's in by just singing in celebration that our God is for us.
that our God is for us and with us, we are not alone.